Gunray brought forth a portable hollow projector and set it down on a table. When the Dark Lord of the Sith had first contacted him months earlier, he seemed to know everything about Newt Gunray and his rise to personal power. Even so, Gunray had been as skeptical then as his advisors were now, despite demonstrations by Darth Sidious of his wide-ranging influence and sway. Secretly, Sidious had arranged for several key resource worlds to join the Trade Federation as signatory members, abdicating their representation in the Galactic Senate in exchange for lucrative trade opportunities and, where possible, protection from smuggling concerns and pirates. And at each turn, Sidious had made the procurements appear the doing of Gunray, thus helping to consolidate Gunray's increasing authority and assuring his appointment to the Directorate. As to whether Sidious's influence truly owed to Sith powers, Gunray could not say, nor did he care to know, based on what little he knew of the Sith, an ancient, perhaps legendary order of black mages, absent from the galaxy for the past thousand years. Some referred to the Sith as the dark side of the Jedi. Others claimed that it was the Jedi who had ended the reign of the Sith in a war that had pitted dark and light against each other. Still others said the Sith, greedy for power, killed one another. But Gunray knew nothing of the truth of these things, and he hoped to keep it that way. He stared pointedly at the projector. The appointed moment was close at hand. Gunray watched as the head and shoulders of a cloaked apparition rose from the device, the cowl of his dark garment pulled down over his eyes, revealing a deeply furrowed chin and a jowly, aged face. An elaborate brooch closed the cloak at the neck. When the figure spoke, his voice was a prolonged rasp. I see, Viceroy, that you have assembled your underlings, as I asked, Darth Sidious began. Gunray knew that the word underlings wasn't going to find favor among Monchar and Hako. Though there was little he could do about that, he thought it best at least to attempt to rectify matters. My advisors, Lord Sidious. Sidious's face betrayed nothing. Of course, your advisors. He paused for a moment, as if probing the incalculable distance that separated them. I perceive an atmosphere of misgiving, Viceroy. Has the aftermath of our plan failed to please you? No, not at all, Lord Sidious, Gunray stammered. It's only that the loss of the freighter and the Erodium ingots is a matter of concern to some. He glanced with purpose at his counselors. The others lack your grasp of the larger purpose, Viceroy, Sidious said with a note of disdain. Perhaps we need to reacquaint them with our intent to stir sympathy for the Trade Federation in the Senate. That is why we informed the Nebula Front militants of the shipment of Erodium. The loss of the ingots will further our cause. Soon you will have the politicians and bureaucrats eating out of your hands, and then the Trade Federation will at last have the droid army it needs. Bactoid, Howard Chawl Engineering, and the Colocoids are waiting to fill your orders. Gunray began to fidget. Army, Lord Sidious? The riches of the Outer Rim await those with the courage to grab them. Gunray gulped. But, uh, Lord Sidious, 
Perhaps the time isn't right to take such actions. Not right. It is your destiny. With a droid army to support you, who would dare question Nimoidia's authority to rule the space lanes? We would welcome the ability to defend ourselves against pirates and agitators, Runehako risks saying. But we don't wish to break the terms of our trade treaty with the Republic. Not when the price of a droid army is taxation of the free trade zones. So you've heard about Chancellor Valorum's intentions, Sidious said. Only that he is likely to give his full weight to the proposal, Gunray said. Sidious nodded. Rest assured, Viceroy, Supreme Chancellor Valorum is our strongest ally in the Senate. Lord Sidious has some influence in the Senate? Harko asked carefully, but Sidious was too clever to take the bait. You will come to learn that there are many that do my bidding. They understand, as you will understand, that they serve themselves best by serving me. Harko and Manchar traded quick looks. What about the Jedi? Harko asked. They won't simply stand by. The Jedi will do only what the Senate bids them to do. Sidious said. Gunray glanced meaningfully at his advisors before replying. We place ourselves in your hands, Lord Sidious. Sidious almost smiled. I thought you might see things my way, Viceroy. I know that you will not fail me in the future. The apparition vanished as abruptly as it arrived leaving the Nemoidians to ponder the nature of the shadowy alliance they had just entered into. Outfitted in lackluster tunics and soft boots, the Jedi students stood in two opposing lines, two dozen lightsabers ignited in brilliant cast, raised in twice as many hands. At a word from the lightsaber master, the twelve students comprising one line set themselves in defensive postures. At the next word from the master, the second line set themselves in offense stances. At the instructor's final word, the second line advanced in earnest. The students in the first line set their lightsabers to defend and, with choreographed precision, retreated purposefully. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan watched from an observation gallery set slightly above the room's padded floor, deep within the pyramid that was the Jedi Temple's towering base. I can remember those exercises like yesterday, Obi-Wan said. Qui-Gon quirked a smile. It's a good deal of yesterday's for me, Padawan. The students were now kneeling in two rows, legs tucked underneath with feet crossed behind them. The room was still, save for the sound of the lightsabers and the master's bare feet as he sauntered between the two rows, appraising each of his students. A Twi'lek, with slender headtails and a heavily muscled upper body, his name was Anun Bandara, a duelist of unparalleled skill. The lightsaber master stopped in front of a female human student named Dasha Asant, who happened also to be his padawan. Bandara squatted down on his haunches to regard her at eye level. What were you thinking when you attacked? Merely to be as forceful as possible, Master. You wanted to win. Not to win, Master. I wanted to strike impeccably. Bandara made a face. 
Rid yourself of thinking. Don't expect to win. Don't expect to lose. Expect nothing. He stopped and glanced at everyone. Do you understand? Yes, master, they replied in one voice. Bandara clapped his hands together loudly. No, you don't. He scowled and sat down at the end of the rows. I will tell you a story. A human, wrongly accused of a crime, was being transported by repulsor lift vehicle across the desert wastes of a remote world to a prison. Without warning, the vehicle experienced a malfunction directly over a pit that was, in fact, the huge and ravenous mouth of a creature that inhabited the wastes. The sudden malfunction catapulted the human's escorts down into the mucus-coated maw of the creature. The human was also thrown from his perch, but at the last instant he was able to hang on to the vehicle's landing strut. Not with hands, however, for they were shackled in stun cuffs behind him, but with his teeth. Shortly, a caravan of travelers happened by. Lost and hungry, the travelers inquired to know the whereabouts of the closest settlement so they might replenish their meager stores. The human found himself in a quandary. By failing to respond, he understood that he might be sentencing the lost travelers to certain death in the sand wastes. But merely by opening his mouth and uttering a word, he would be sentencing himself to certain death in the digestive tract of the sand creature. Bandara paused. Under such circumstances, what must the human do? The students knew in advance that they were not likely to hear the answer from Anun Bandara. Getting to his feet, the lightsaber master added, I will hear your responses tomorrow. The students bowed at the waist and kept their foreheads to the mat until Bandara had left the room. Then they rose, eager to compare opinions of the training session. Qui-Gon tapped Obi-Wan on the shoulder. Come, Padawan, there's someone I wish to speak with. Obi-Wan trailed him down the steps and onto the soft floor. There, several Jedi Masters were conferring with their Padawans. Obi-Wan knew some of the Masters, slightly, but the person Qui-Gon steered them toward was not someone he had ever met. She was perhaps one of the most exotic women Obi-Wan had ever seen. Her face was triangular in shape, and the lower portion was tattooed in small diamond shapes that formed a vertical stripe from her lush, blue-black lower lip to the tip of her round chin. The backs of her hands also bore tattoos, atop each knuckle joint. Obi-Wan, I want you to meet Master Luminara Unduli. Master Jin, the woman said, taken by surprise, and inclining her head in a bow of respect. Qui-Gon returned the gesture. Luminara, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi, my Padawan. She bowed her head to Obi-Wan as well. Qui-Gon's expression became serious. Luminara, Obi-Wan and I have had a recent encounter with someone who bears markings similar to yours. Arwen Cole, Luminara said before Qui-Gon could go on. He was a freedom fighter, a hero to the people of my world during a war fought with a neighboring world. He was a great warrior, and he made many sacrifices. But soon after our people won their freedom, he was accused of being a conspirator by the very people on whose side he had fought. That was their way of assuring that Cole would not be elevated to the position of authority our people wished him to assume. 
He spent many years in prison, subjected to cruel punishments and harsh conditions, and those further hardened a man who already had been hardened by war. Did he bear any special grudge against the Trade Federation? Qui-Gon asked. Luminara shook her head. No more than anyone else in my home system. The Trade Federation brought us into the Republic, though they did so at the expense of my world's resources. In the beginning, Arwen Cole would hire himself out only to those whose cause he felt was justified. But over time, he became nothing more than a pirate and a contract killer. He was said never to have betrayed a friend or an ally. She paused for a moment, then added, It is regrettable that history will remember the criminal Cole rather than the exemplary Cole. I was sad to hear that he had perished at Dorvala. When Qui-Gon didn't respond, Luminara asked, did he not? Qui-Gon appeared preoccupied. For now, I'll grant that he vanished at Dorvala. Carbon scored and blistered by the explosion that had sundered the freighter, an arc of the Revenue's starboard hangar arm hung over Dorvala's wan polar cap. Perpetual sunlight poured in through the main hangar portal, where the arm's hand might have been, illuminating a shambles of cargo pods and barges. Affixed like a barnacle to the inner hull, however, sat a lone battered shuttle. Inside the shuttle, and even the worse for wear, sat her crew of eight. I'm still waiting for that pardon you promised, Cole said to Rella. She shot him a look. If and when you get us out of this, and not a moment before. They had been inside the arm for almost four standard days. They hadn't planned on remaining in the hangar arm after the explosion, but once it had been determined that the arm was just outside the tug of Dorvala's gravity, Cola decided that the hangar would be the best place to bide their time. The Hawkbat and the Nebula front support ships had fled, and even the Inquisitor had disappeared, a fact that Cole found curious, since it was unlike the Nemoidians to leave cargo behind, jettisoned or otherwise. Another option would have been to race for Dorvala's surface, to what had been their base before the boarding operation. But Cole suspected that the base had been discovered and would probably be under surveillance. When Rella and some of the others had suggested striking out instead for Dorvala 4, it was Cole who reminded them that salvage and relief ships would be on their way to Dorvala, and a lone shuttle crawling through space would certainly attract unwanted attention. Cole and his crew suffered the monotony without complaint. Most of them were stoic by nature and no strangers to privation in any case. Anyone who wasn't wouldn't have been selected for the operation. Only Rella was inclined to speak her mind, but she and Cole had an understanding. Anything on the comm? Cole asked Boiny. Not a peep, Captain. Rella snorted. Who are you expecting to hear from, Cole? The Hawkbat is long gone. Cole looked past her to the Rodian. What's the status of the systems? Nominal. Rella growled impatiently. You know, I can last in here as long as any of you, but this litany is driving me space happy. She mimicked Cole's voice. System status. Then Boiny's. Nominal. She gave her head a shake. Can't you at least come up with other ways of saying it? Here's something that will cheer you up, Rella, Jalan said. The arm's orbit is deteriorating. She forced her eyes wide open. If you mean we're actually in danger of falling from the sky, you're right. I'm thrilled. Jalan looked at Cole. 
No immediate danger, Captain, but we should probably begin to think about leaving. Cole nodded. You're right. It's time we bid goodbye to this place. Served us well, though. Rella raised her eyes to the low ceiling. Thank the stars. Where are we off to, Captain? Boyney asked. Downside. Captain, I hope you're not thinking of riding this thing down to Dorvala, Jalan said. Cole shook his head negatively. We're returning to base under our own power. The crew members traded uneasy looks. Begging your pardon, Captain, Jalan said. But didn't you say the base was probably being watched? I'm sure it is being watched. Rella stared at him for a moment. Are you scrambled, Cole? Even if we make it to the base in one piece, Rella said. What happens then? Without a space-worthy ship, we'll be stranded. Maybe Dorvala 4 is worth a shot after all, Captain, Jalan interjected. If we manage to make it, I mean, with the nebula front likely thinking that we're dead and all that erodium right here with us... Rella cast Cole a sly glance. Are you listening? Cole's gaze darkened. That's not going to happen. We took this job on and we'll see it through. Then we collect our pay. He swung angrily to Rella. Begin your pre-flight. The rest of you, prepare for launch. The small ship burned its way through sunlit Dorvala's nebulous envelope, red nose aglow and losing pieces of itself to the thin air. The crew cinched their harnesses tighter and focused silently on their separate tasks. Rella aimed the trembling shuttle for a broad valley in the equatorial region, defined by two steep escarpments. Massive, sheer-faced tors crowned with rampant vegetation rose like islands from the forest floor. Blinding white in the sunlight, the tors were the birthplace of waterfalls that plunged thousands of meters to turbulent pools of turquoise. Dovala mining had carved wide roads to the bases of most of the larger cliffs, and two circular landing fields, expansive enough to accommodate ferries, had been hollowed out of the forest. It was from here, with an assist from several disenfranchised employees of Dorvala Mining, that Cole had finalized his plans for boarding the revenue. The shuttle was leveling out of its bone-rattling ride down the well when a blunt-nosed ship tore past to port, intent on making its presence known. Who was that? Rilla asked. Dorvala Space Corps, Boyney reported, his black orbs fixed on the authenticators. Coming about for another pass. Cole swiveled his chair to the viewport to watch the ship's lightning-fast approach. It was a fixed-wing picket ship, single-piloted but packing dual laser cannons. Incoming transmission, Captain, Boyney said. They're ordering us to set down. Did they ask us to identify ourselves? Negative. They just want us on the ground. Cole frowned. And they already know who we are. That judicial department lancet, Rella said, turning to Cole. Whoever was piloting it probably registered our drive signature. The picket barrel rolled through a tight loop and came back at them once more, this time firing a burst from its forward laser cannon. They mean business, Captain, Boyne said. Cole swung to Rella. Keep an eye out for a place to crash. She gaped at him. You mean land, don't you? The picket's lasers stitched a ragged line across the shuttle's tail. 
What had been a steady roar from the engines became a distressed whine. Flames licked their way through the aft bulkhead, and the cabin began to fill with thick, coiling smoke. We're dirt-bound, Rella shouted. Cole clamped his right hand on her shoulder. Hold her steady. Fire repulsors and brace for impact. Contact with the ground was even harsher than any of them had anticipated. The starboard stabilizer plowed into the leaf-littered soil at an acute angle, causing the ship to flip like a tossed coin. The roll seemed to go on forever, punctuated by the deafening clamor of collision. The hull caved in, and conduits burst, loosing noxious fluids and gases. All at once, it was over. New sounds filled the air. The pinging of cooling metal, the hiss of punctured pipes, the boisterous calls of frightened birds. Gravity told Cole that they were upside down. He unclipped his harness and allowed himself to drop to the ceiling of the shuttle. Rella and Boiny were already there, bruised and bleeding, but regaining consciousness even as Cole went to them. He put an arm under Rella's shoulders and took a quick look around. The rest of the crew were surely dead or dying. Satisfied that Rella would be all right, Cole sprang the portside hatch. Moisture-saturated heat rushed in on everyone, but blessed oxygen as well. Cole bellied outside and immediately consulted his comlink's compass display. Did Jalon make it? Rella asked weakly. The human answered for himself. Barely. Cole squirmed back inside. Jalon was hopelessly wedged beneath the console. He placed a hand on Jalon's shoulder. We can't take you with us, he said quietly. Jalon nodded. And let me take a few of them with me, Captain. Rella crawled over to Jalan. You don't have to do this, she started to say. I'm most wanted in three systems, he cut her off. If they find me alive, they're only going to make me wish I was dead anyway. Boiny looked at Cole, who nodded. Give him the destruct code. Rella, separate the ingots into four equal allotments. Put two allotments in my pack, one in yours and one in Boiny's. He glanced back at Boiny. Weapons and orodium only. No need for food or water, because if we don't make it to the base, Dorvala Penal will be providing all of that for us. Moments later, the three of them exited the ship. Cole shouldered his weighty pack, took a final compass reading, and set off toward a nearby tour at a resolute clip. Everyone kept up as best they could, climbing steadily under thick canopy for the first quarter hour while the picket ship made pass after pass in search of some sign of them. From the high ground at the base of the Lomite Cliff, they could see the picket ship hovering over the treetops. Rella grimaced. He found the shuttle. Unlucky for him, Cole said. No sooner had the words left Cole's mouth than an explosion ripped from the forest floor, catching the picket ship unawares. The pilot managed to evade the roiling fireball, but the damage had already been done. Engines slagged, the fighter listed to port, dropped like a stone. The second picket ship roared overhead just as the first was exploding. The third followed, angling directly for the base of the tor where Cole and the others were concealed. The picket poured fire at the tor, blowing boulder-sized chunks of lomite from the cliff face. Cole watched the ship complete its turn and set itself on course for a second run. As it approached, a deeper, more dangerous sound rolled through the humid air. 
Without warning, crimson energy lanced from the underbelly of the clouds, clipping the picket's wings in mid-flight. Unable to maneuver, the fighter flew nose first into the cliff face, came apart. That's another one we won't have to worry about, Cole said. Rella raised her head in time to see a large ship tear overhead. The hawk bat. She glanced at Cole in surprise. You knew she would be down here. He shook his head. The contingency plan called for her to be here, but I didn't know for sure. She almost smiled. You may get that pardon yet. Save it for when we're safely aboard. The three of them began a hurried descent of a scree field skirting the cliff face. Not far away, her weapons blazing, the hawkback was setting down at the center of a muddy and befouled catch basin. Thousands of sentient species had a home on Coruscant, though it might be only a kilometer-high block of nondescript building. And nearly all those species had a voice there, though it might be only that of a representative long corrupted by the diverse pleasures Coruscant offered. Those manifold voices had their say in the Galactic Senate, which sprouted like a squat mushroom from the heart of Coruscant's governmental district. Flanked by his two aides, Doriana and Pestage, Senator Palpatine smiled pleasantly as he threaded his way toward the rotunda, easing past the blue-robed Senate guard stationed at the doorway and stepping down into Naboo's balcony platform in the vast amphitheater. One of 1,024 identical balconies that lined the inner wall of the dome, the platform was circular and spacious enough to accommodate half a dozen or more humans. Palpatine sensed renewed intensity in the recycled air. Gossip had alerted everyone to the topics Valorum planned to discuss, but many were eager to hear for themselves and hungry to respond. In an effort to take a measure of senatorial opinion regarding taxation of the outlying trade routes, Palpatine had spent the past few days meeting with as many senators as possible. Gently, he had attempted to persuade the undecided into backing Valorum, so that the Supreme Chancellor might carry the day without the support of Naboo and its neighboring worlds. His own sense of urgency took him by surprise. The buzz in the rotunda was that infectious. By the time the Supreme Chancellor finally showed himself, the atmosphere was agitated. Valorum's perch was a 30-meter-tall dais that rose from the center of the floor like the stalk of a flower. Conveyed to the bud of the flower by turbolift, Valorum stood alone with the Senate's sergeant-at-arms, parliamentarian, journal clerk, and official reporter seated below him in a round dish that cradled the bug. When the clapping and the occasional verbal accolades had gone on long enough, Valorum held up his hands in a gesture that begged silence. His first words brought a faint smile to Palpatine's lips. Delegates of the Galactic Senate, we find ourselves beset by a confluence of sobering challenges. Frayed at its far-flung borders by internecine skirmishes and hollowed at its very heart by corruption, the Republic is in grave danger of unraveling. Recent events in the mid and outer rim demand that we stem the rising tide of strife by restoring order and balance. So dire is our plight that even extreme measures should not be dismissed out of hand. 
Valorum paused briefly to allow his words to sink in. The free trade zones were originally created to foster exchange between the core worlds and the outlying systems of the mid and outer rims. At the time, it was thought that free and open trade would prove a benefit to all concerned. But those zones have since become a haven, not only for smugglers and pirates, but also for shipping and trading cartels that have availed themselves of the liberties we ensured by setting themselves up as entities of political and military leverage. Murmurs of concurrence and discord stirred the already impassioned air. The Trade Federation comes before us with a request that we do something to safeguard commerce in the outlying sectors. They are within their rights to request this, and we are obliged by our covenant to respond. But in a very real sense, it is the questionable practices of the Trade Federation that have made it a target for thieves and terrorists. In the same way, we must accept some of the blame for this, since it was this body that granted the Trade Federation such latitude, and it is this body that has chosen to turn a deaf ear time and again to what transpires in the outlying systems. This practice cannot be allowed to continue. The Trade Federation has become a bloated creature, ingesting lesser concerns and refusing to do business with worlds that seek to ship with its few remaining competitors. It would not be overstatement to say that these trade zones are no longer free. And yet the Trade Federation comes before us to solicit our help in putting an end to the disorder it has fashioned. There is a solution to all this. If the Trade Federation wants us to ensure that the outlying systems be made safe for commerce, a task that will require action from this body as well as from the many systems that lay within the free trade zones, then those planetary systems must be brought into the Republic as member worlds. Those worlds that the Trade Federation currently represents in the Senate must abjure their affiliation with the Federation and bring their individual voices to this hall to be heard as autonomous systems once more. Valorum allowed the grumbling to go on for several moments before he gestured again for silence. We urge that the worlds of the free trade zones move quickly and decisively. Terrorist groups like the Nebula Front are merely the tip of a more deep-seated discontent. By working in accordance, the volunteer militaries and space corps of the affected systems can quell local insurrections before they swell to widespread revolution. The direct consequence of this will be the abolition of the free trade zones. The trade routes to those outlying systems that join the Republic would henceforth be subject to the same taxation that applies to the routes in the core, the colonies, and the inner rim. I urge you to consider that such action is long overdue, for free trade is no longer that when all trade is controlled by one cartel. Clamorous cheers and boos punctuated the air, but reaction was not as mixed as Palpatine had feared it might be. Still, he was disappointed. Valorum had made a case for taxation without addressing any of the consequences or the possible compromises that might be made. Exasperated, Palpatine glanced around the amphitheater, wondering who would make the first move, figuratively and literally. It was the Nemoidians who acted, loosing their balcony from the inner wall and directing it to the center of the rotunda. Detached, 
The platforms resembled sleeker versions of the repulsor lift air taxis that filled Coruscant's skies. We recognize Delegate Lot Dodd, Valorum said, representing the Trade Federation. A saucer-shaped hover cam with a single antenna rushed in to broadcast Lot Dodd's flat-faced likeness to the screens built into the display consoles of the balconies. We submit that the Senate does not have the right or the authority to enact taxation of the outlying trade zones. This is nothing more than a ploy to break up our consortium. It was the Trade Federation who opened the hyperlanes to the outlying systems, who risked the lives of its spacefaring captains to bring formerly primitive worlds into the Republic and new resources into the core. If the Senate does not wish to intercede with the Nebula Front, or indeed if it is incapable of doing so, Dodd continued, then it must at least grant us what we need to defend ourselves. As it is, we are defenseless in the face of far superior fighters. Where some cheered and some booed, Valorum merely nodded. Commissions can be appointed to determine if additional defense capabilities are warranted at this time he said sternly. Another balcony dropped from the curved wall. We recognize Bale Antilles of Alderaan, announced Valorum. Supreme Chancellor, the human said with great emotion, under no circumstances should the Senate allow the Trade Federation to augment its droid defenses. If the Nebula Front has succeeded in making certain sectors dangerous then the Federation should avoid those trouble spots until such time as the involved sectors find a way to counter terrorism. By sanctioning increases to the Federation's defenses, we imperil the balance of power throughout the Outer Rim. And what becomes of the worlds in those contested sectors? Senator Orn Freeta of Ryloth asked, his blue headtails draped over the bodice of an exorbitant cloak. How do we trade with the core? With whom do we ship? Rejoinders flew fast and furious from all sides of the chamber. The Trade Federation will seek to offset the taxes by charging more for their services, the Bothan delegate argued. The outlying systems will in turn be forced to assume the burden of taxation. Palpatine saw what was coming and quickly dispatched black-cloaked Saint Pestage to deliver a handwritten note to the sergeant-at-arms, who relayed the note to the Supreme Chancellor. Valorum received the message a moment after the Bothan delegate had demanded to know how the credits garnered from taxation would be allocated. Lifting his eyes from the note, Valorum glanced at the Naboo balcony before responding. I propose that a percentage of the revenues garnered through taxation be allocated for relief and development of the outlying systems. Cheers roared from most of the upper-tier balconies, and many of the senators in the platforms there came to their feet to applaud. Palpatine detached the Naboo platform and dropped for the center of the rotunda, chased by two hover cams. We recognize the senator from the sovereign system of Naboo, Valorum said. Supreme Chancellor, Palpatine said. May I suggest that, while many important points have been made, these issues are far from resolved, and should perhaps be explored in greater depth in a different forum, after everyone has had an opportunity to reflect on what has been said. 
Valorum appeared confused for a moment. What sort of forum, Senator Palpatine? Before the motion goes to committee, I propose that a summit be held, where delegates from the Trade Federation and its signatory members can meet openly to offer their solutions to these sobering challenges, as you say. The same senators who had cheered Valorum now applauded Palpatine. Uncertainty and perhaps vague misgiving drained some of the color from Valorum's face. Do you have some specific location in mind, Senator? he asked. Palpatine considered it. May I suggest Eriadu? A platform joined Palpatine's at the center of the rotunda. The delegation's dark-complexioned human members wore loose-fitting garments and cloth turbans. Supreme Chancellor, their spokesman said, Eriadu would be honored to host such a summit. Senator Tura seconded the motion and moved to enact a moratorium on the taxation proposal. Valorum had no choice but to comply. I will confer with all relevant parties and set a date for the summit, he said when the Fuhrer had abated. With regard to taxation of the outlying trade routes, there will be a moratorium on the voting process until the summit concludes and all viewpoints have been expressed. Furthermore, as a sign of the Senate's commitment to foster peace and stability, I shall attend the summit personally. Many in the rotunda rose and applauded. Valorum's gaze found Palpatine and lingered on him for a moment. Palpatine smiled and nodded conspiratorially. Sporting jagged wounds it hadn't had when it had first appeared over Dorvala, or later when it had settled down to retrieve Cole and what was left of his team, the Hawkbat floated in space, gravitationally anchored to a buff-colored world of arid mountain ranges and ice-blue seas. Five cloak-shaped starfighters surrounded her, with a sixth nuzzled up to the gunship's starboard airlock. Far beyond the ships spread a band of space mines made to resemble asteroids. On the Hawkbat side of the airlock, Cole waited vigilantly for his visitors to board. The airlock's indicator light flashed. Do you want me to disappear? Rella asked from behind him. Cole shook his head without taking his gaze from the airlock. Stick around. Keep your blaster handy. Rella drew the weapon from the holster on her right hip and checked the charge. The airlock hissed open and a slim human and a reptilian humanoid stepped into the corridor, dressed alike in caftans, coarsely woven trousers, and knee-high boots. The latter had tough corrugated skin, iridescent in sunlight, and hands the size of scoop-ball mitts. His flat face had multiple nostrils, and four small horns protruded from his forehead. From his left hand dangled a sizable carry case. "'Welcome to Asmaru, Captain Cole.' the human said in basic. It's good to see you alive and comparatively well. Cole nodded curtly in greeting. Havoc? Havoc motioned to his hulking partner. You remember Sindar? Cole nodded again. Neither he nor the Hawkbat's scanners saw signs of concealed weapons on the pair. Rella, he said, motioning to her by way of introduction. Havoc smiled and extended his hand to her in a courtly gesture. How could I forget? Let's go forward where we can talk, Cole said. 
He appraised his guests as they walked. Havoc wasn't the human's real name, but rather his combat name. A former Ahala documentarian, Havoc had been an alien rights activist during the Stark hyperspace conflict and had spent the past several years chronicling the various abuses of the Trade Federation. In fact, he had no stomach for violence, but he was sharp and had a talent for treachery. He and Sindar weren't characteristic of the thousands of human and non-human members of the Nebula Front, but they were standard issue in the organization's burgeoning militant wing. Now headquartered on the arid planet below, the Front had recruited from worlds up and down the Rima trade route, from Sullust to Sluis Van, but only the ancient houses that ruled the Senex sector had granted them a base of operations. The four of them entered the main forward cabin and seated themselves around a circular table. Sindar placed the carry case at the center of the table. I have to hand it to you, Captain, Havoc said. You've got the Trade Federation running scared. They've even solicited help from Coruscant. Cole shrugged. No harm in trying. Havoc leaned forward with a certain eagerness. You have the Orodium? Cole glanced at Rella, who unclipped a remote from her belt and keyed a short code. A small repulsor sled bearing a lockbox lifted off the deck nearby and floated toward the table. Rella entered another code, and the lid of the box opened, its contents of ingots spilling rainbow light into the cabin. Havoc's and Sindar's eyes widened. I can't tell you what this will mean to us, Havoc said. Rella handed the remote to Havoc, and Sindar closed the lid on the lockbox. Here's another bonus for you, Havoc, Cole said. We had some unexpected trouble at Dorvala. Someone infiltrated the revenue using the same technique we used. They hit a ship inside a cargo pod, just like we did. They tracked us when we left the freighter and came close to ruining what I thought was a secure plan. Their ship turned out to be a judicial department lancet. Havoc and Sindar traded surprised looks. Judicials? Havoc said. Cole watched them carefully. Actually, I think they were Jedi. Havoc's incredulity increased. Why do you think that? Call it a hunch. The point is, no one was supposed to know about that operation. Havoc sat back in his seat, perplexed. What are you asking me? Who else in the Nebula Front knew about the operation? Sindar snorted in derision. Think it through, Cole. Why would any of us sabotage our own campaign? That's what I'm asking, Cole said. It could be that not everyone down below agrees with your methods. You are hiring us, for example. Someone could have been trying to sabotage you, not me. Havoc nodded. Thank you, Captain. I'll bear that in mind. He paused briefly, then said, What's next for you two? We thought we'd retire from mayhem, Rella said, taking hold of Cole's left hand at the same time. Maybe take up moisture farming. Havoc grinned. I can see that. The two of you on Tatooine or somewhere, living among banthas and dewbacks. It's just your style. Why the curiosity, Cole said. Havoc's grin straightened. We may have something big in the works, something perfectly suited to your talents. He glanced at Rella, then back at Cole. 
it would pay enough to guarantee your retirement. Rella shot Cole a warning look. Don't listen to him, Cole. Let someone else hire out to the Nebula Front. She cut her eyes to havoc. Besides, we plan to retire in high style. The job I have in mind would allow you to retire in high style, Havoc baited. Cole let go of her hand and tugged at his beard. It can't hurt to hear them out. Yes, it can, Cole. Yes, it can. He looked at her, then laughed shortly. Rella's right, he told Havoc. We're not interested. Havoc heaved his shoulders and stood up, extending his hand to Cole. Come and see us if you have a change of heart. Much closer to the core, the Inquisitor had returned home. Sullen Nimoidia rotated slowly beneath the ring-shaped freighter. In Zone 2 of the port arm, balanced atop his claw-footed mechno chair, sat Viceroy Newt Gunray in rich burgundy robes and triple-crested tiara. Off to Gunray's right stood legal counsel Rune Hako and Deputy Viceroy Hathmanchar. And to Gunray's left, the Inquisitor's new commander, Dorte Dauphine, fresh from the debacle at Dorvala and still bewildered by his unexpected promotion. In the center of the hangar floor hunkered a double-winged behemoth, which bore a vague resemblance to Nimoidia's gauzy-winged needle flyers, Ponderously exiting the wide-open jaws of the behemoth's foot ramp rode thickly armored russet-colored vehicles that might have been modeled on charging panthers. Backs humped in anger, puffing clouds of hot exhaust, laser cannons extended like tusks. Behind those came droid-operated repulsor lift tanks with shovel-shaped prows and top-mounted gun turrets. Prototype war machines, the gargantuan landing craft, the monstrous multi-troop transports and the sleekly styled tanks had been designed and built by Howard Troll Engineering and Factoid Armor, whose alien representatives were standing in full view of Gunray and beaming with pride. Behold, Viceroy, Howard Troll's insectoid representative said, gesturing with all four arms to the closest transport, whose circular deployment hatch, hinged at the top, was just swinging open. Gunray watched in amazement as a rack telescoped from the hatch and dozens of battle droids unfolded themselves before his eyes. And this, Viceroy, Factoid's winged representative added. Gunray's red eyes moved back to the landing craft in time to see a dozen air hooks soar toward the upper reaches of the hangar arm. Blade-thin vehicles with twin footrests and top-mounted blasters all were piloted by droids whose backward-leaning postures made them appear to be hanging onto the slender handlebars for dear life. Gunray was speechless. As you have probably observed, Viceroy, Howard Charles' representative was saying, the Trade Federation already has most of the raw materials needed to create your army. He motioned to the representative from Bactoid. In partnership with Factoid, we can convert your security and worker droids to battle models and your barges and cargo pods to landing craft. More units, less money, the Howard Charles representative added. We enjoy dealing with Nemoidians, Factoid's representative said, because of the enthusiasm and awe you demonstrate for our creations. Therefore, we have other weapons in mind for you. 
Starfighters that will no longer have to rely on droid pilots, but will themselves answer to a central control computer. Gunray heard Dofine swallow audibly, but it was Hako who spoke. This is madness, he said, lowering his voice and limping closer to the mechno chair. Are we merchants, or are we would-be conquerors? You heard Darsidious, Gunray hissed. These weapons will ensure that we remain merchants. They are our guarantee that groups like the Nebula Front or mercenaries like Captain Cole will never again risk going against us. Darsidious keeps us in servile fearfulness, Hako said, blinking repeatedly. What can we do otherwise? asked Dauphine. Instead of honoring our request for additional defenses, the Senate threatens us with taxation. We need to take matters into our own hands if we are to protect our cargoes. Or would you have us continue to lose ships to terrorists in addition to losing profits to taxation? But the other members of the Directorate... For the time being, they are not to know anything of this. We will apprise them of these things gradually, and only if necessary. Yes, Gunray said, only if necessary. Palpatine had been on Coruscant for several years, and he felt that he knew the place better than many lifelong residents did. He knew it the way a jungle cat knew its territory. Frequently, he would shrug off his elaborate cloak and take up the simple dress of a trader or a recluse. He would throw a hood over his head and wander the lightless abysses, the seedy underworld. Beneath his ambitions, for himself, for Naboo, for the Republic at large, he had always been unassuming, and that apparent lack of guile allowed him to all but disappear in a crowd, as only a person of solitude might as one who had kept his own company for so many years. And yet, others sought him out. What Palpatine lacked in charisma, he made up for in candor, and it was that directness that had led to his widespread appeal in the Senate. Among the delegates who represented the worlds of the outlying systems, his reputation was particularly exalted, primarily because tiny Naboo was one of those worlds, all by itself at the edge of the mid-rim, with Malastare, home to Grands and Dugs, its only neighbor of significance. Like many of its neighbors, Naboo was ruled by an elected monarch, and an unenlightened one at that. But it was a peaceful world, unspoiled, rich in classic elements, and inhabited not only by humans, but also by a mostly aquatic indigenous species known as Gungans. When most of his peers had left public service at the accepted age of twenty, Palpatine had elected to remain a politician. His tenure on Coruscant had provided him with singular insight into the afflictions that vexed the outlying star systems. It was while befriending a group of Bith delegates that he first learned of the Nebula Front, and later it was a Bith who introduced him to some of the members who commanded the organization. By rights, Palpatine should have had nothing to do with terrorists, but the founding members of the Nebula Front were neither fanatics nor anarchists. Many of their grievances with the Trade Federation and Coruscant were legitimate. More important, wherever the Federation was involved, it was difficult to remain impartial. Eventually, the Bith had introduced him to the Front's newest leader, Havoc. For previous meetings with Havoc, Palpatine had selected out-of-the-way places in Coruscant's lawless lower levels. 
but the current crisis in the Senate had necessitated that they exercise a greater measure of secrecy. So Palpatine had chosen a humans-only club in Coruscant's mid-level, a place where patricians could gather for tobacco, brandy, games of dejaric, and quiet reading, and where there were actually fewer prying eyes than lower down. Valorum is audacious, Havoc said angrily, as soon as they were seated at a table in the club's hardwood-paneled dining room. He has the gall to announce a summit in the midrim, on Eriadu, no less, without asking the Nebula Front to participate. Unlike the Trade Federation, Palpatine said, the Nebula Front does not enjoy representation in the Senate. Yes, but the Front has many friends on Eriadu, Senator. Then all the better for you, I should think. We're fed up with Valorum. He treads docilely when and wherever the Trade Federation is concerned. His threat to tax the trade routes is pure rhetoric. It's time that someone convince him that the Nebula Front can be a more dangerous foe than the Trade Federation. Palpatine made an offhand gesture, as if in dismissal. It's true that the Supreme Chancellor has little understanding of the Nebula Front's objectives, but he is not your primary obstacle. Look elsewhere for your enemies. Look to the members of the Trade Federation Directorate. Havoc mulled it over for a moment. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps we do need to look elsewhere. He grinned faintly and lowered his voice to add, We have made a powerful new ally who has suggested several courses of action. Indeed. It was he who provided the data we needed to destroy a Trade Federation freighter at Dorvala. The Federation has thousands of freighters, Palpatine said. If you expect to be victorious by destroying their ships, you're deluding yourselves. You must get to the principles, just as I have been doing in the Senate. Do we have any friends there? A meager few. Whereas the Trade Federation has the support of many important delegates who are enriched for their loyalty. Havoc rested his elbows on the table and leaned forward. We have the funds you asked for. Palpatine's eyebrows went up. Already? Our benefactor told us that the revenue... It's best if I don't know how you received them, Palpatine interrupted. Havoc nodded in comprehension. One possible problem. It's in the form of orodium ingots. Orodium? Palpatine sat back in his chair, steepling his fingers. Yes, that could present a problem. I can't very well distribute ingots to those senators we hope to impress. We'll have to have the Orodium converted to Republic Deteres, even though that will require some time. Palpatine fell silent for a moment, then said, May I suggest that one of my aides help you set up a special account with a bank on an outlying world that won't ask questions about the origin of the ingots? Once the Orodium is safely deposited there, you'll be able to transfer funds through the Intergalactic Bank and draw against the account in the form of Republic credits. Havoc clearly liked the idea. I know you'll put the funds to the best possible use. I'll do all within my power. Havoc smiled in admiration. You are the voice of the outer systems, Senator. Standing just outside of the Jedi Temple's east-facing gate, 
Qui-Gon gave thought to where he should wander. The day was warm and cloudless, except to the north, where microclimatic storms were swirling about the summits of some of Coruscant's taller buildings. To Qui-Gon's thinking, the council members were too willing to dismiss Cole as nothing more than a symptom of trying times, when he was much more than that. He hadn't gone half a kilometer when Adigalia fell into step beside him, catching him by surprise. In search of something purposeful, Qui-Gon? Or just hoping you'll bump into something worthy of your attention? He smiled at her. I have. You. She laughed, then scolded him with a look. Adi had been a permanent member of the High Council for over a decade, and a Jedi Master for much longer than that. Where is your young apprentice? she asked as they sauntered. Sharpening his wits. So you actually give him an occasional respite from your resolute tutelage, she teased. It's a mutual thing, Qui-Gon said. She laughed again, then grew serious. I have news that's bound to interest you. It seems that you might have been right about Cole's surviving the explosion. Qui-Gon came to a dead stop in the center of the sky bridge they were crossing. Droids and pedestrians ambled past him to both sides. Has Cole been seen? Adi leaned on the bridge railing and gazed back toward the temple. Dovala Space Corps pursued a shuttle that matched the description and drive signature you and Obi-Wan furnished. The shuttle crashed and exploded on world, apparently not far from where Cole had established a temporary base. But here's the interesting part. The shuttle was clearly attempting to rendezvous with Cole's personal ship. The Hawkbat. It set down close to the crash site, then proceeded to blast its way off Dorvala, taking out a number of Dorvala's picket ships on the way. Cole made it to the ship, Qui-Gon said. You're that certain? I am. Has there been any sign of the ship since? It jumped to hyperspace as soon as it left Dorvala behind. But surveillance has been doubled at all of Cole's known retreats. Assuming he did survive, he'll be spotted and, with luck, captured. Adi, is there a chance that Obi-Wan and I could... Cole is no longer our concern, she cut him off. Supreme Chancellor Valorum is attempting to encourage the systems along the Rimmer trade route to assume responsibility for curtailing acts of terrorism in their separate sectors. Intervention on our part would likely be viewed as indirect support of the Trade Federation. Qui-Gon frowned. That's short-sighted. Most of the worlds along the Rimmer support the Nebula Front to one degree or another. Adi regarded him for a long moment. Qui-Gon, suppose I could arrange for you to meet with Chancellor Valorum, so you could apprise him of these matters personally. Qui-Gon nodded. All right. Then it's settled. I'm on my way to meet with him now, and there's no time like the present. I couldn't have put it better. In his chambers beneath the Senate Rotunda, Valorum reclined in his chair, exhaling wearily as he stretched his arms over his head. What's on the agenda for this afternoon? he asked Seitaria as she came through the office's tall ornate door. The young woman glanced at her wrist comm screen. You have a meeting with Adi Galia, then a follow-up meeting with Bail Antilles and Horrocks Rider. After that, you are meeting with the representatives of the Corporate Alliance and the Trade Delegation from Ord Mantell. Then enough, Valorum said, holding up his hands and shutting his eyes. He gestured to the door and the corridors beyond.
How bad are things out there? As crowded as I've ever seen it, sir, she said. But I'm afraid that that's not the half of it. Valorum stood up and reached for his cloak. Tell me the rest. The plaza is swarming with demonstrators. Some are calling for the breakup of the Trade Federation. Others are denouncing your stand on taxation. Security recommends that we leave by way of the rooftop platforms. No, Valorum said firmly. This was to be expected, and now is hardly the time for me to avoid my critics. Say smiled approvingly. I told security you would say that. They said that if you insisted on exiting through the plaza, they would be tripling the guard. Very well. Valorum squared his shoulders. Are you ready? Sayi went to the door. After you, sir. You didn't mention you were inviting me to a political rally, Qui-Gon said, as he and Adigalia arrived at the expansive plaza that fronted the Senate. I didn't know, Adi said, plainly astonished by the sight. Mixed-species crowds extended from the pedestaled building itself, clear to the terminus of the avenue of the core founders. The balconies there overlooked a sprawl of spired buildings, their close-set summits rising below the plaza. Where are you supposed to meet him? Qui-Gon said, loudly enough to be heard over the periodic chants and general clamor. Outside the north entrance, she answered, close to his ear. Tall enough to see over the heads of many in the crowd, Qui-Gon gazed toward the Senate dome. There will be no getting to him, not if I know the Senate guard. Let's try anyway, Adi said. Otherwise we'll go to his private office in the presidential tower. Qui-Gon took Adi's hand and began to edge into the crowd. This far from the building, there was no telling the pro-Valorum from the anti-Valorum protesters. Qui-Gon stretched out with his feelings. Beneath the current of anger and dissent, something else was in the air. Coruscant's usual howl was charged with menace. He sensed danger, not the vague sort that might emanate from any gathering of this nature, but specific and targeted. He closed his eyes momentarily and allowed the Force to guide him. His opened eyes found a bith standing at the leading edge of one gathering. The Force bade Qui-Gon look to his left, to two Rodians, lurking near the tall base of one of the statues. Closer to the Senate's north exit stood two Twi'leks and a Bothan. Qui-Gon raised his gaze to the ceaseless traffic flow above the plaza's north end. A green air taxi caught his eye. Disc-shaped and open-topped, with a semicircle of stabilizers below, it was no different from most of the other taxis that filled Coruscant's sky. The fact that it was riding outside the defined corridor of the auto-navigation lane told Qui-Gon that the pilot, another Rodian, knew the sky lanes well enough to have been granted a free travel permit. Not far below the taxi, just at the rim of the plaza, hovered an eight-lobed repulsor lift platform, atop which sat Chancellor Valorum's personal shuttle. Qui-Gon swung to Adi. I sense a disturbance in the force. She nodded. I feel it, Qui-Gon. He glanced up at the air taxi, then cut his eyes to the Rodians positioned near the statue base. The Supreme Chancellor is in danger. We need to hurry. Unclipping their lightsabers from their belts, they began to thread their way through the crowd. They reached the north exit in time to see a phalanx of guards surge into the plaza. Behind them came Valorum and his young aide, at the center of six other guards who were steering the couple toward the docking platform. Qui-Gon looked up. 
the air taxi reversed directions and began to hover above the plaza. At the same instant, the two Twi'leks began to hasten toward Valorum, their hands buried in the sleeves of their loose robes. Suddenly, blaster bolts streaked from the crowd, catching two of the most forward guards and dropping them to the paving stones. Screams erupted and the crowd panicked, rushing every which way to avoid danger. Qui-Gon ignited his lightsaber and moved toward the Twi'leks. Weapons drawn, they fired, only to see the bolts deflected by the lightsaber's brilliant green blade. Additional bolts darted from the Rodian's blasters, but Qui-Gon moved quickly and managed to deflect those. He twirled, raising his weapon to parry fire, careful to divert the bolts above the heads of the scattering demonstrators. The Force told him that Adi, her crimson blade ignited, had angled for Valorum, who was effectively pinned to the plaza by his guards. An explosion sounded nearby, launching clouds of astringent white smoke and further terrifying the fleeing demonstrators. Qui-Gon understood at once that the detonation was only a distraction. The real danger came from the opposite side of the plaza, where two more assassins were racing forward, armed with small hand blasters. As another guard fell, one of the assassins fired into the gap that had been opened in Valorum's protective cordon. Adi turned two of the energy darts, but a third got through. Valorum grimaced in pain and toppled sideways. A Senate guard advanced, his long rifle blazing, felling both assassins. Qui-Gon heard the air taxi begin a rapid descent, its rounded form trailing a trio of hauling cables. A Twi'lek and the two Rodians fought their way to a clear area in the plaza and grabbed hold of the cables. Qui-Gon prized a liquid cable launcher from a pouch on his belt and fired it as he ran. The hook bit deep into the underside of the taxi, and the monofilament cable began to unspool. Qui-Gon hooked onto the cable, thumbed the winding mechanism, and rode it skyward, his lightsaber extended in his right hand. Coming alongside the two Rodians, he severed their cables with his blade, sending them plummeting back to the plaza. The Twi'lek, however, was still above him, and Qui-Gon realized that he would never reach him in time. The air taxi was already banking for the northern lip of the plaza, clearly hoping to shake Qui-Gon loose into one of the chasms below. Level with the tallest of the core founder statues, Qui-Gon let go and dropped, landing on the shoulders of the statue, then leaping to the pedestal base and finally to the plaza. Qui-Gon spun on his boot heels and hurried for Valorum. Formed up into an unbreachable perimeter, the remaining guards stood with their feet planted and their rifles pointed straight out. Adi saw Qui-Gon approaching and told the guards to make room for him. The right side of Valorum's cloak showed a large bloodstain. We have to get him to the med center, Adi said in a rush. Qui-Gon put his right hand under Valorum's left arm and eased him to his feet. Adi supported him from the other side. With their lightsabers still ignited, they began to move the Supreme Chancellor back into the Senate building while the guards covered their retreat. It was theorized by those who devoted themselves to such things that one could fall from the roof of the Senate dome and land directly in the med center at which the delegates enjoyed exclusive privilege. A safer and far more certain method for arriving intact at the Galactic Senate Med Center was to ride a turbolift from the rotunda or be delivered there by Skycar, as Senator Palpatine had chosen to do. 
Saint Pestage piloted the Skycar to an unoccupied lobe of a docking platform anchored to the entrance coded for humans and near-humans, by far the most adorned of all the rectangular admitting areas. Waste no time, Palpatine said from the back seat, but be discreet. Pestage nodded. Consider it done. Palpatine stepped from the rear of the circular sky car, gave a smart tug to the front of his embroidered cloak, and disappeared through the entrance. In the lobby, he encountered Senator Ornfrey Tarr. I heard that you were here, Palpatine said. The corpulent twilight gave his massive head a presumably mournful shake. A tragic event, truly terrible. Palpatine raised an eyebrow. All right, Tar huffed. The truth is that Valorum has been blocking my requests for reduced tariffs for the exportation of Rill from Ryloth. If I can ease that by visiting him in the hospital, so be it. We do what we must, Palpatine said mildly. Tar studied him for a moment. And I take it that your visit is prompted by genuine concern? The Supreme Chancellor is the voice of the Republic, is he not? For the moment, Tar said nastily. With Senate Guard sentries posted throughout the admitting area, Palpatine was made to show his identification no fewer than six times before being ushered into a waiting room reserved for Valorum's visitors. There, he exchanged greetings with Alderan's delegate to the Senate, Bale Antilles, a tall, handsome man with graying hair, and with the equally distinguished senator from Corellia, Com Fordox. You've heard who's to blame for what happened, Fordox asked as Palpatine sat down on the couch opposite him. Only that the nebula front appears to have been involved. We have confirmed evidence of their involvement, Antilles said. Fordox's features reflected anger and confusion. This is beyond comprehension. An act that cannot go unpunished, Antilles agreed. Commiserating with them, Palpatine firmed his lips and shook his head. A terrible sign of the times, he said. Palpatine waited while Fordox and Antilles had their visit with Valorum. Sometime later, Saetaria entered the waiting room. Palpatine rose and nodded. How good to see you, Say. Are you all right? She mustered a warm smile. I'm fine now, Senator, but it was terrible. Palpatine adopted a grave look. We will do all we can to protect the Supreme Chancellor. I know you will. How is he? She glanced at the door. Eager to see you. Valorum looked pale and grim, but he was sitting up in bed his right arm from wrist to shoulder encased in a soft tube filled with Bacta, a transparent gelatinous fluid produced by an insectoid alien species, Bacta had the ability to promote rapid cell rejuvenation and healing, usually without scarring. Palpatine often felt that the wondrous substance was as key to the survival of the Republic as were the Jedi. Supreme Chancellor, he said, approaching the bed, I came as soon as I heard. Valorum made a gesture of dismissal with his left hand. You shouldn't have bothered. They're releasing me later today. He motioned Palpatine to a chair. In any event, I want to thank you for the message your aide delivered to the podium. But why didn't you inform me in advance of your plan to propose a summit meeting? Palpatine spread his graceful hands. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision. 
something had to be done before the taxation proposal went to committee, where it may have been crushed out of hand. A brilliant stroke. Valorum fell silent for a long moment. The Judicial Department has advised me that my attackers are members of the Nebula Front. Valorum forced an exhale. Now I see what the Trade Federation is up against. Palpatine said nothing. But what was the Nebula Front's motive in attacking me? I'm doing what I can to find a peaceful solution to all this. Your efforts are obviously not enough for them, Palpatine said. Valorum thought about it. Perhaps I was wrong in ruling that the Nebula Front shouldn't be allowed to participate in the Ariadu Summit. I feared giving the impression that the Republic would be recognizing them as a political entity. Furthermore, I couldn't envision them sitting down at the same table with the Nemoidians. Confusion clouded his eyes. But what could they hope to gain by having me killed? I've been asking myself the same question, Palpatine replied. But you were right not to solicit their participation. They are dangerous and deluded. Valorum nodded. We can't risk having them interfere at Ariadu. Too much is at stake. The outlying systems must be encouraged to speak for themselves, without fear of reprimand by the Trade Federation or reprisals by the Nebula Front. Palpatine steepled his fingers in reflection. Perhaps it is time to ask the Jedi for help, he said at last. Valorum regarded him for a long moment. Yes, perhaps the Jedi would be willing to intervene. He brightened somewhat. Two of them helped thwart my would-be assassins. Indeed? The Senate will have to sanction Jedi involvement. Would you consider introducing the motion? Palpatine smiled with his eyes. I would consider it a great honor, Supreme Chancellor. <laughs>